You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast on issues and innovations in women's health from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. Since early 2018, it has been my great pleasure to learn more about women's health issues from some amazing experts on this podcast. We just passed our 50-episode mark, and to celebrate, we will spend this episode looking back at moments from some of your favorite interviews. Conversations about birth control are always incredibly popular on the Women's Health Cast. Our first interview about contraception with Dr. Eliza Bennett aired in two parts in June and July 2018. She explained how different types of birth control work and dispelled some contraceptive myths. Here's a clip from All About Birth Control, Part 1. I think for a long time, um, the the belief has been that, that you need to have a menstrual cycle to be healthy. Um, but actually, when we look back at the history of contraception, um, in the 1950s, when contraception was being developed by um, uh, uh uh, Goody Pincus and John Rock, who were the two initial developers of it, they felt like if they could mimic a natural cycle, especially John Rock felt like that mimicking a natural cycle was really important for women's acceptance because he felt like women that stopped having menstrual cycles felt uncomfortable and felt like like something was going on in their body that was unnatural or unhealthy. And so when the birth control pill was designed, it was designed with that in mind. So it's that historical reference that has resulted in the pill formulations that we have today um, that maintain that menstrual cycle, even though it's a false cycle. It's only induced because of the withdrawal of progesterone. It isn't because of the natural cycle of hormones that occurs when people are not using contraception. We also had a great birth control conversation with Dr. Jenny Higgins, professor of gender and women's studies at UW-Madison. She studies how side effects, especially side effects that affect our sex lives, influence how people choose birth control methods. In Mind the Pleasure Gap, which aired in December 2018, we talked about why she thinks birth control research that doesn't consider pleasure and sexuality is bad science, and her hopes for a cultural shift in considering the sexual side effects of birth control methods. I do think there's there are changes needed at a larger structural and cultural level, and then there are potentially things that individuals can do, right? I think sometimes in public health and medicine, we rely too much on the patient or the provider to change the system, right? When, when really what we're talking about is a larger cultural shift, right? So if I could wave my magic wand we as a culture would come to think of contraceptives as not just a medical good, but also a good that people use often in sexual contexts. And so um, we need to be thinking about, does this work for this person or this person's partner and other things in a, um, in a, in a sexual way, in a relationship way? At an individual level, I think, you know, what I, I teach a very, very large um, health, gender and health course. It's an intro level course in the gender and women's studies department here. And what I tell the students is, you know, if you remember one thing, it's just you deserve to find a method that works for you. And how you define that is up to you. Um, you know, for, for some people, having a reduction in menstrual bleeding might be the most important thing. For some people, that's less important, but having no synthetic hormones may be the most important thing. Um, but in all of it, you deserve to have a method that isn't going to detract 
distract from your sex life or your partner's sex life. And so if you if that comes up for you, that's okay and normal and you can talk to people or you can look into resources about finding another method that's going to work better. Um, and so just planting that seed that, you know, maybe you'll have absolutely no sexual impact due to your method, but if you have a negative one, you deserve to find another method that's going to work for you because that's going to be better for everybody, right? You know, it's, it's you're going to be more satisfied with your method and with your sex life. Your partner's going to be more satisfied. Um, you'll be better able to prevent the pregnancies you want to prevent. So um, it, this isn't about sexual entitlement. This is about thinking about how sexuality can just promote, you know, more general um, health and well-being across the board. Many of our episodes look at different aspects of pregnancy. Looking back through our episode list, you can test your knowledge of some pregnancy facts and fiction with Dr. Kristen Sharp, get detailed explanations on C-section and recovery from Dr. Ryan McDonald, or learn about how diabetes and pregnancy interact with Dr. Kara Hoppe. One of my favorite pregnancy-related interviews, though, is with maternal fetal medicine specialist Dr. Jackie Adams. In August 2019, she and I talked about opioid use during pregnancy. As we know, opioid use is increasingly widespread in the U.S. My favorite moment of her incredibly informative interview came at the end, when she explained how doctors can help reduce the stigma of using opioids and make sure more people get great care during their pregnancies. You mentioned um, stigma. And I feel like that's that could be very common and could even be um, something that would maybe make a mom feel less less inclined to disclose to some really important information to her OBGYN provider, which feels totally understandable. Um, what do you think providers can do a better job of to kind of set this patient population at ease and make sure that they're comfortable disclosing all the relevant information to make sure they're getting the best possible pregnancy care? I think it really starts at the very beginning. One thing that we can all do better for is screening. Um, This is actually a really hot topic right now is how do we screen for opioid use disorder because this is kind of an in-between patient population. The things that we do for adolescents maybe aren't relevant for a, a woman in her 30s, but the things that we do for an adult man for screening maybe aren't exactly the same. You know, it's really easy for women to kind of fly under the radar, I think, because they may not have health insurance until they become pregnant, and so they aren't even getting screened. Um, I think really the biggest thing we can do is implement universal screening strategies, and that's something that we're we're trying to work on. There is research being done about what the best screening program is. Um, and then, you know, I think just treating every patient that walks in the door the same is the number one thing that we can do to reduce stigma. And I think things like the Fresh Beginnings class really help because when you hear, you know, someone fabulous like Dr. Getz with pediatrics tell you, your baby's going to go through this. It's going to be fine. We're going to get through it together. Um, and in five years, your baby will do just great. I, I think hearing that and, you know, hearing us say your nurse is your best friend, they can stop your family from coming in if you need time or, um, you know, respect your privacy and maintain your privacy. And um, I even have the residents stop by sometimes and just say hi, because I'm like, you might see this person in triage. And, you know, we just want you to know that we're all on the same team. I think all of those things help. Um, And for me, at the end of the day, it's all about just treating every patient with the same dignity that we would treat a patient that didn't have opioid use disorder. Because really what stops people from getting care, in my experience, is feeling that they'll be judged or that we're just waiting to call social services to take their baby away or 
anything of that nature. If we can head that off at the pass, then I think women are so much more likely to rely on us. This podcast also has a lot to offer in terms of common women's health conditions like polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, or gynecologic cancer. In September 2018, Dr. Laura Cooney joined us to talk about polycystic ovary syndrome. She shared the changing diagnostic criteria and how she helps people manage their PCOS through both lifestyle and medical treatments. Uh, Are there other medical treatments available for people with PCOS? Yeah, so the first line treatment is really lifestyle changes. So um, thinking about physical activity, thinking about nutrition, there have been good studies looking at even losing 5% of weight can improve and normalize someone's periods. So the first things that I focus on with women with PCOS is sort of getting them set up with a nutritionist, helping them set goals for you know, what their activity will be, even changing little things like decreasing the amount of soda or sugary drinks that someone drink uh, drinks. So working on that kind of stuff is really first line. When we think of other types of actual medications for PCOS, um, the first thing really is birth control pills. So someone with irregular periods, if you're not getting a period, can increase your risk of endometrial hyperplasia or cancer, which we haven't talked about yet. But putting someone in birth control pill to regulate those periods can decrease that risk. It also helps significantly um, with the the hair growth. So that's one of the first-line treatments for someone with unwanted hair uh, is to put them on birth control pills. There are a sort of multitude of second-line treatments for the hair growth. So a lot of women will be on a medication called spironolactone. There's topical treatments. There's laser hair removal. So if someone starts to get... um, you know, they, they don't respond to the initial treatments. I frequently work with a dermatologist. And so you can see the, the underlying theme here is that there's so many different providers that can work with women with PCOS. And once you start to think about the prediabetes, that's where medications like metformin come in. A lot of different women with PCOS might be using metformin. Um, it used to be used more commonly in the fertility side of things until we got better medications like clomid or letrozole, so I use it a lot less commonly in women trying to get pregnant. Endometriosis is another very common gynecologic condition, affecting around 1 in 10 women with symptoms like pelvic pain, irregular bleeding, pain with sex, and more. Dr. Kara King is a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon, now at the Cleveland Clinic, and she talked about endometriosis treatment in March 2019. I learned a lot from this conversation, but most staggering for me was the length of time it takes on average for someone with endometriosis to get it diagnosed. How long on average does it take from um, the patient presenting the first time with a complaint of pelvic pain or irregular bleeding to eventually arriving at an endometriosis official diagnosis? Now, this answer can be quite embarrassing, to be honest. Studies have looked at this, and appallingly, the average time from patient presentation to diagnosis is about seven to 10 years. What? It's astounding. I absolutely agree. And I think one of the reasons why it has taken, it takes so many patients that long to confirm a diagnosis is that these symptoms can overlap with so many other generalized symptoms that many providers uh, don't give it. Uh, don't give these symptoms the um, the priorities that they deserve or the attention that they deserve. I hear many times women tell me that their physician tells them, and "This is just what periods are. Welcome to being a woman. This is what you should be feeling." 
and that is just so far from the truth um, that I'm hoping that by educating patients and educating providers that we can definitely shorten this time between presentation and diagnosis. Cervical cancer is the third most common gynecologic cancer in the United States, with nearly 13,000 new cases diagnosed every year. In September 2019, gynecologic oncologist Dr. Summer Wallace talked about what causes cervical cancer and how it's detected and treated. In particular, Dr. Wallace emphasized how people can reduce their risk of cervical cancer and other human papillomavirus-related cancers in men and women by getting the HPV vaccine. What are some of the ways that people can prevent or reduce their risk of developing this kind of cancer? I'm so glad you asked that question. So there's two main ways. We've talked about one already, which is to me the secondary means of preventing cervical cancer, and that's screening. So going in, having your doctor, seeing your doctor regularly, um, you know, we often advocate for seeing your gynecologist once a year for a pelvic exam. That doesn't always mean that you're getting a pap test, um, but certainly seeing your gynecologist or your primary doctor on an, enough of a regular basis to get screened, either via a pap test or an HPV test. Um, now, the primary prevention is vaccination. Um, so HPV vaccination is... Um, uh, now widely available, widely recommended by gynecologists. Um, it is uh, just recently expanded to include a, up to ages 45. So both men and women can get this vaccine. It's recommended for, I guess I should say boys and girls, because it's actually recommended at ages around 11 or 12. Um, it's a series of vaccinations, but even just getting one of the shots has been shown to have some benefit. Of course, you're not getting the same benefit as getting the entire series, but, um, and it's already been shown to reduce high-grade dysplasia rates. Um, our vaccination rates in this country aren't as high as in others, which is disappointing, but that's okay. We'll get there. Um, for example, in Australia, where their vaccination rates are greater than 70%, they've, they've really seen a dramatic reduction in their high-grade dysplasia rates um, and cervix cancer rates, for that matter. Uh, and I anticipate that's how things would go here, as they already are with even you know lower rates of vaccination. So it's a safe vaccine. There's nothing else like it to prevent cancer. Um, multiple types of cancer and multiple different strains of the human papillomavirus. We've had other opportunities to share health tips that are applicable across gender or age. Dr. Ahmed Al-Niyami is a surgeon in the UW-OBGYN Division of Gynecologic Oncology, and while he usually operates on women with gynecologic cancers, he shared his five tips that anyone can use to recover faster from surgery in August 2018. Try to be as healthy as you can. Obviously, we all try to be as healthy on a daily basis, but especially if you are going for a surgery in the near future or in the coming few days or a week or two, ask your surgeon or your team or your healthcare team or your primary care physician for that matter, ask them, what are the things that I can do to help to make me you know, recover faster? If I have diabetes, what should I do? If I have high blood pressure, what should I do? If I have medical issues that might impede or, or delay my recovery, what can I do to, to have those managed under control? So point two is, to summarize point two, is actively manage your other medical problems and let the surgery deal with the surgery itself. 
don't expect the surgeon or the surgery team to take care of all the medical issues that you have. They will, but it helps if you as a person kind of take in charge of all the medical issues that you already have. So before surgery, get ready, get your all the medical issues under control. There's sometimes this perception that OBGYN care, women's health care, is only necessary up to a certain age. But on the Women's Health Cast, we've interviewed experts who address women's health concerns across the lifespan. In November 2018, I talked to Dr. Christine Heisler about pelvic floor disorders, including common issues like incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse. While pelvic floor disorders aren't usually life-threatening, Dr. Heisler stressed the importance of understanding how much they can affect women's lives when looking at treatment options. When um, patients come to you who are experiencing um, incontinence or prolapse or other pelvic floor disorders, what do they tell you about how it's affecting their lives? Um, it's really quite variable. Some patients may develop uh, one symptom, for example, stress incontinence, that may be managed conservatively um, with reducing some fluid intake, avoiding some of the extreme sport exercises or other types of exercise. Um, so it, it, it may be modified before she ever presents. Um, the risk that we run as practitioners is missing that opportunity to let her get back to her normal life. It may not be ideal that she's already avoided some of the behaviors that um, really bring her pleasure in her life and it increases her quality of life. So patients may present with different symptoms um, and the impact of those symptoms is something we actually assess. So some patients may have resigned to live with it and it comes up in a history with a primary care provider haphazardly or incidentally, and then they make a reflex referral and the patient really isn't bothered by it. Or we've had patients who are referred for prolapse and when asked, what impact does this have on your life? She'll say, they told me I had this and I should come to you. Conversely, we may have patients who are coming in because they can't have sex with their partner. They can't um, maintain continence to do any of the activities that brings them pleasure. And so the impact could be very substantial. And it's really important that we understand as providers what the impact is because that may also tailor our plan for management. Dr. McCabe Williams is a North American Menopause Society certified physician. In November 2018, she joined the Women's Health Cast to clear up some misconceptions about menopause and explain why she encourages people to think of it as a time to reset their health. What do you wish more people knew about perimenopause symptoms? And I guess, do you have you know, any advice for someone who's not sure whether her symptoms warrant talking to her doctor? So what do I wish women knew? I think that menopause has gotten a bad rap over the years. And what I wish women appreciated more is that menopause is a physiologic normal event, much like puberty and the you know, onset or beginning of a menstrual cycle, reproductive cycles. Are, it's normal. So uh, we've normalized that for teenage girls. And I would like for women to know that what you're going through is normal. Um, it's not the end of the road. It's uh, not a time to despair. But because you are going to live so much of your life in menopause, that this is uh, a time for you to be reflective, time to hit a reset button, 
and get this is an opportunity for you to optimize your health. And I encourage women to have a conversation even before they approach their mid-40s. Have a conversation with their healthcare provider so that they can find out more information about what they can expect down the road and begin a conversation of prevention and what you might be able to do to help optimize your health. And lastly, I would say um, women need to know that you don't have to suffer with these symptoms. And there are many treatment options available, both hormonal and non-hormonal, to address what you are going through. The Women's Health Cast can also be a great look at the ways healthcare is changing and adapting to meet more people's needs. For example, in June 2019, Dr. Ruth Yamani joined us to talk about simple ways to make OBGYN care and healthcare in general more safe, comfortable, and welcoming for LGBT people. I feel like a lot of studies have shown that LGBT patients um, can experience some pretty significant discrimination in healthcare settings, which Mm -hmm. very understandably would make them less likely to seek care or less interested in seeking care. Correct. Um, What needs to happen to make sure that every patient's experience Mm -hmm. with the healthcare system from walking in the door all the way through their exams Mm -hmm. and procedures is inclusive and comfortable and welcoming? Yeah, um, I think there's a lot that can be done. And I think part of it starts with addressing some of the homophobia and transphobia within the healthcare system. Um, And that's going to come from education and holding people accountable. Um, You know, there are things that we can do in addition, you know, making the OBGYN office not feel so, um, let's say, heteronormative, you know, because they... Someone who identifies in the LGBTQ community may come to an OBGYN visit, see a number of, you know, pregnant women, and then feel uncomfortable, right? They see no reflection of themselves anywhere in that office. So there has to be a way to kind of um, express that they're welcome there, you know, Um, using proper pronouns. That's an easy but surprisingly difficult thing that people have um, that can make all the difference for someone trying to get care you know that might be the starting point they didn't call me by the right pronoun I don't feel comfortable here you know and making those mistakes immediately creates kind of a, a barrier or a wall I think between um, patients and their health care system um, so again there are a number of things that we can do but I think part the biggest part is education and holding ourselves to a certain standard technology will also change the way healthcare is delivered moving forward In November 2019, Dr. Mary Landry talked about a telehealth birth control program she started for UW-Madison students. Instead of visiting a clinic, the new program made it possible for students to get birth control prescriptions with an online questionnaire and a quick phone call with a nurse. In this clip from Telehealth and the Future of Birth Control, she describes how new models like telehealth can address barriers to care. And I really think that that is the direction in the future of how we are going to address barriers for some people um, by being more creative and inclusive with how we deliver care rather than the traditional model of you have to come to us in order for us to provide you with care. So absolutely at base. And the college age population is driving how we deliver care. Like I said, we don't give anything on paper. 
Our patients don't call to make appointments. It's all done online. So as much as I think I'm really good at in-person, one-on-one interaction, if that's not important to her at this moment in time when she needs care, then I'm going to meet her where she needs to be met in order to reduce any barriers that she or they might have regarding reproductive care. So yeah, app base, you bet. Thanks for listening along for our first 50 episodes. On the next Women's HealthCast, we'll be back to our normal. We'll share an interview with Dr. Amy Young, Vice Dean of Professional Practice at the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School and Chief Clinical Officer at UT Health Austin. We sat down in March after she gave a special lecture to the UW Department of OBGYN. The Women's HealthCast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's HealthCast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what women's health issues you'd like to learn about. Thanks for listening.